The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, bud, what's going on? It's been a week. Hasn't it? Yeah. You know, you have those weeks where you're like, hmm, if my tire blows out on the way to work, it probably wouldn't be the worst thing that's going to happen today. It's been that week, so. I get it. I've uh, Yeah, it's been uh, fun here. Not so much work-related, but just... It's great times being a homeowner until it's time to be a homeowner because some shit's broken, and yeah. Yeah, I want to find out whoever said that was part of the American dream and choke that person. So <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, yeah. right now, renting sounds so much better, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's an apartment with no yard? Like, man, that is some sweet living at the moment. And yeah, so... Uh, I don't know how it is where you're at, but school is now in session where I'm at. Yes. And all of a sudden, it's amazing how many belly aches and nausea and ear aches have suddenly popped up in the roughly, you know, seven-year-old to 17-year-old population in my part of the state. I surprisingly have not had much yet. I actually have a student who's doing his pediatric rotation and... Like today, we seen mostly adults because there wasn't. I mean, we ended up having a few kids, but nothing like that. I'm like, just wait another week or two. You know, the kids will start spreading germs to each other, and we'll have all kinds of good sickness going on. Pediatric rotation. What a sucker. <laughs> anyway, but I am super excited. We have a guest tonight. Ben, do you want to take the honors? Sure. So. We want to welcome Dieta to the show. Dieta, how's it going? Hey, doing okay. Can you briefly fill us in on kind of what you do and why you're why we have you on the show for in our odd jobs kind of series? <laughs> yeah, so I am a nurse practitioner, but I specialize, well, I did specialize in palliative care on a full-time basis. I do kind of consulting work now and I'm a professor, but my history as a nurse practitioner mostly has been in palliative medicine and managing symptoms, pain, that sort of thing related to end of life illness, but not not exactly all and always end of life, but just quality of life issues. And I can say just in speaking with Dieta originally when we were kind of working on getting her on the show, I said, "Oh yeah, let's talk about palliative care and hospice." You know, it's basically the same thing and I was quickly corrected. <laughs> Yes, that's true. So palliative care and hospice are not the same thing. So hospice is a form of palliative care, but palliative care is not always hospice. So as a palliative care NP, I have mostly worked in um, oncology settings. So I take care of people who oftentimes do have life-limiting illness, however, have taken care of, you know, the breast cancer patient that was having quality of life issues because of body image changes and that sort of thing. So it's a very wide variety. It does not always mean that you're dying if you're referred to palliative care. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, see, I, was, I was so wrong. <laughs> you, you were so wrong, and now we're fixing it. But that's, I guess that's part of why we are doing it, though, is to expose people to this information. Exactly, yeah. Well, so uh, pre-show we were talking, and Miss Dieta informed me that She's never listened to the show, so she doesn't know that your favorite part of the show is oh. coming up, Ben. That's true. 
What part is that, Tom? <laughs> I think it's this part where we talk about all the plethora of social media avenues that people can peruse while looking for just some podcast. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. You can find us on the web or at www.justsomepodcast.com, or you can email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. You can also find us on Helium Radio. That's Helium Radio After Dark, Channel 2, Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. And Tom, we are also now searchable and findable on iHeartRadio apps. Do they know that? Ooh, I heard, well, I'm assuming so. I mean, they did that on purpose. Yeah, it's actually a process you have to apply for to get listed there, and they actually have to individually approve your podcast. So somebody at iHeart actually listened to one of our shows, probably not the alcohol episode, um, <laughs> and uh, said, yeah, let's get these guys on our uh, on our apps, though. There we are. How low are their standards? Well, I don't know, but <laughs> low enough to <laughs> But anyway, Tom, hey, what else can they do to help out the show? Well, they can go to our website. At the bottom of that website, there's an Amazon affiliate link. You click on that. It will take you back to Amazon. You can shop. It will not cost you anything extra. And whatever you buy, there are some proceeds that come back to the show, which we greatly appreciate. We also have a merchandise section that is on the website that they can go and they can find shirts and coffee mugs and stickers for all the people that truly heart the old jsp they can help us out with doing that we always appreciate it yeah they could you know tell us about that i would really like to take some time though for a second and just ben ben has a look of terror on his face for a second but it's i promise it's good well i think it's good so i notice i listen to several other podcasts and they always talk about all the feedback i mean we get some feedback and it's usually very positive i just i am asking if you listen to the show regularly i don't care where you're at because we have listeners around the world all seven continents all seven continents that's right hey guy from norway down there in antarctica you know whoever please write us and tell us how you think we're doing on the show what we can do better what you liked what you didn't like whatever just let us know how it's going so that we can try and use your input to make the show better and i was just thinking about that today while i was driving around i was like man i really wish some people would tell us more now, if you think we suck, you know, I mean, that's fine, too. But I, we, we always get all the good. Well, I always hear all these other podcasts like, oh, my God, we're going to get so many emails. I'm like, I don't think we get any emails. It doesn't matter what offensive shit I say. We just don't seem to get any emails. So I, I'm not really I don't want to go further. I don't know how much further I could go and still be allowed on the air. So I'm just saying I know there are people that are listening. We do read your emails. If you message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email, we read those. So yeah. if you want to reach out to us, we would really appreciate it. So I just thought I would take a second. See, Ben, that wasn't bad. No, that wasn't bad. But I suspect, Tom, that you know the offensive shit that you say, people are just like, you know what? It's Tom. And they just roll with it because that's what I, I do. I'm like, eh, it's, it's just Tom. Yeah, I was gonna say there's some there's seen blah 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 blah. Words hard. <laughs> Words are hard tonight. So I tend to have a personality. I feel like people they talk to me for about 30, 45 seconds. They're like, oh, I feel like I know this guy, and maybe that's what's happened. I don't know, but I'm asking you then, as a person that knows me, please just reach out to us. Let us know. Give us some ratings, some reviews, some criticism, some shout outs, some praise, whatever it is you want. Just let us know and give us some feedback, and we would really appreciate it yeah tom you realize that next week is our one-year anniversary of doing this podcast wow it, it, do you want the honest to god truth no i did not realize it was next <laughs> no, week. it really is yeah no we started september 8th is when we released our first episode so next week's episode will be september 7th you know and looking maybe that's what we should do next week we should cover how we think the last year's been going maybe because shit has changed <laughs> since, since that first episode. True. Okay. But so, I uh, I digress. Let's let's keep going forwards because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Yeah, we do. So you ready for stories you may have missed, Tom? Oh, I am always ready for the stories okay. you may have missed. Well, I'm gonna preface this with these are stories. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover a couple of stories, Tom. 
Oh. These are stories that we have actually addressed previously that I just want to kind of provide some updates for. Oh, okay. That sounds good. And I figured we could discuss it. So, first story. the We had talked briefly in one episode about the Ohio physician who was prescribing excessive doses of painkillers, basically euthanizing patients in a large health system there in Ohio. Well, Tom, that uh, doctor has been charged with 25 counts of murder and accused of prescribing excessive doses of the painkiller fentanyl to patients who were in the hospital. Most of them were elderly or severely ill. The motive for why he did this remains unclear. Um, His attorney states that it's not a murder case, and I can assure you there was never any attempt to euthanize anyone by this physician, because at no time did he ever have the intent to euthanize anyone. He pled not guilty. His bond is set at $1 million during the arraignment on Wednesday. Tom, what's your thoughts? I don't know enough of the specifics. Like I said, I live in Ohio, so I am well aware of the case. I would say I don't know enough of the specifics for me to say what their legal counsel was thinking, because I could pretty much assure them there was nobody from the attorney general's office sitting around going, hmm, I wonder if this guy should be charged with murder based on what's going on. They did not go into charging a single individual with 25 counts of murder with not having a clear understanding of what actions took place. And the reason I say that is because if anybody's thinking, well, I don't want to accidentally give somebody too much medication, there would be an adverse reaction, and I'm going to get sued, I would assure them that there was a lot more forethought going into this prosecution than an accidental, let alone 25 accidental overdoses. Well, and reading further into the story, just briefly, patients were given anywhere between 500 micrograms and 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl a few hours to a few minutes before they passed away. And again, I think if there was a single incident, you could even say, did the nurse accidentally misread, you know, the order, whatever, but not 25 times. That just does not happen. Miss Dieta? Yes. What do you think? No, I agree. That does not happen. That's a ton of fentanyl to give. (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. Anytime we've ever even given a hundred, I'm like, huh, uh, that's what we're doing now. That's, are we, are we sure? As a, in palliative care, oftentimes dealing with like end of life issues and also, Patients that have had addiction issues through their life and now have some sort of cancer, other life-limiting illness. Sometimes fentanyl is something that I can use, but I've prescribed patches that last every 72 hours. I think the most I've prescribed is like almost 300 micrograms per hour for them to apply every 72 hours. And when I was doing that, I was just like, oh my goodness, but... I mean, that it's not something that is something that I ever did on the regular. I well, mean, that that's a lot of fentanyl. That is a lot of fentanyl. And I want to clarify for our non and Miss Dieta, we actually do have several non-healthcare personnel people that listen to the show, and they've written us and told us about that, et cetera. So just to clarify to everyone out there, 100 itself isn't something that I'm like, oh, my God. But it is – you're getting into that range where you're like, are you sh- – you're sure this is where right. we want to go. I mean, let me can, ask some questions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we can go higher. I've gone higher, but at the same time, as the nurse delivering that medication, I I was never hesitant to go, are we really sure this is where we want to go? When you when you break that 75 mark, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. hold on. I want to know <laughs> that we're all on board or at least review something before I give it. And so when someone says, Oh, they gave two thousand, I'm like, Nope, that's not a thing. <laughs> you you can't accidentally give two thousand. That's no, no, you cannot. No, that no, no, no. So, what do you think, Ben? I think two thousand micrograms of fentanyl <laughs> is a lot. Of fentanyl <laughs> That's a time. lot of fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. You I can mean, even... I order fentanyl in the ER. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, that you 25 mics, 50 mics, that's all well and good. But yeah, you start getting in higher doses than that, it's like, yeah, you know, there's we got some questions. Yeah, I've, I've even seen when EMS has brought somebody in for like multiple injuries or something like that, and I'm like, you gave how much over a period of time? 
I'm like, even then, I'm still like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How much did you give them? I, I want to know what's going on before or when did you last give it, etc. So I, I think it's important for everybody that does not work with fentanyl on a regular basis, is not aware of all of that. And that includes our healthcare people out there. It's a great medication when it's used correctly. It, it does its job. And I think it in some ways gets a bad rap because of the current opiate crisis that's going on across the country. Everybody knows fentanyl is being mixed in, etc. But like most other medications, it's you have to do your due diligence due diligence, if I could even say that, uh, when you're given that type of medication. So, yeah, when someone says, well, what if? I'm like, there's no what if. <laughs> when you hit 500 to 2,000, that's not a what if. There's no there's more what if to does, that dosage. Yeah. So what's the next story? Well, the next story, Tom, do you remember a story that we had talked about several months ago? The Probably drug not. king... <laughs> you probably, that's true. You have amnesia. I don't know. It's weird. Um, the drug kingpin that Oklahoma was trying to take down. Johnson and Johnson. Johnson and Johnson. Tom, who's now ordered to pay five hundred seventy-two million dollars. Five hundred and seventy-two million dollars for the Oklahoma opioid epidemic. Wow. This rested uh, largely on the state's public nuisance law, which marks actions that interfere with or obstruct with the rights of the community. Now, Oklahoma was asking for $17 billion, with a B, so they didn't quite get that number. And, of course, Johnson Johnson is planning to appeal the decision. But, yeah, you know, this kind of adds along with Purdue Pharma and several others that have been ordered to pay back for opioid crisis that we're currently in. But, yeah, apparently a judge in Oklahoma agreed that Johnson & Johnson, even though they weren't directly involved, they were... Uh, selling like new Senta and some other things like that and actually own some of the opioid fields. That's what ultimately led to their responsibility. I'm going to be very interested to see how this plays out because if I was Johnson Johnson, based on some of my understandings of how this was prosecuted, I'd probably appeal as well. Well, let me rephrase that. If I'm the CEO of Johnson Johnson, we're appealing that. <laughs> like that's a, that's a, that's a gimme, but based right. on some of the grounds of the legal issues, that they are proposing and how they worded it. And also I find it interesting that Oklahoma struck first because I am not in any way saying that a person from Oklahoma is worth less than a person in Kansas or Florida or California, but the level of opiate crisis situation in Oklahoma from statistically pales a comparison to some of these other States. So I'm glad that they did it. I'm, I'm totally pro somebody being aggressive, I guess, in this case. I, I don't know how else to put it. But when you look at some of the other states that are suffering, I'm like, man, if Oklahoma scored that, you might as well just give up <laughs> if you come up to the Northeast. Like, that's just done. My only concern is, so we went after Purdue. Okay. You know, Oxycontin, that's well documented. We talked about it on our opioid episode. Yes. You know, Johnson & Johnson kind of has a... They may have had a finger in the pie, but they certainly weren't, in most cases, directly resulting yeah. in the marketing and things of that nature. I think this creates a very slippery slope, particularly as a provider. I mean, at what point are providers going to be start listed as in lawsuits exactly. from states? Exactly, and that's that, what I was saying. If I'm Johnson & Johnson... I think they have some legal footing. And again, I am not a lawyer and I did not read all the briefings on this, but just some of the right. cursory information I've seen, I was like, there seems to be some pieces missing to the puzzle still that maybe I don't know about. I'm willing to accept that, but I would definitely be appealing this. And I had seen multiple of the uh, commentators, you know, every news organization has a doctor on staff now for stuff. And uh, most of them were saying the same thing. They said uh, Johnson Johnson may be the parent company, but ultimately this comes down to physicians providing this medication. So where ultimately is all this going to fall? And are they setting a precedent where now if somebody doesn't like the outcome of a medication, who, who all gets blamed? Yeah. Granted, that's a gross generalization of the opiate crisis. I'm just saying if some other medication comes out and it's abused and someone doesn't like where it's going is, you know, Rhode Island going to try and sue a medical practice for doing stuff like, OK, wh where and how is this type of prosecution going to be applied? That, that was my only significant concern with it. That's all you got. <laughs> that, that, that's all you got. 
Dieta, have you had yes. to deal with any of this? Or So you said you were an assistant professor. How do you talk to your new nurse practitioners about stuff like this? Well, I do have a word, a minute on the opioid crisis. So yes, I agree that actually just like the antibiotic crisis, it's the oh, same God. kind of deal. Yeah. The physicians and the nurse practitioners and the PAs are the ones ultimately responsible because we... No one gets a prescription until we prescribe it. I mean, that is the end of the story. We can blame Big Pharma. We can blame all these other companies, the marketing, influence, whatever. But at the end of the day, the provider is prescribing the drug. But the opioid crisis, I don't think is something that is new. I think it's something that we are blowing up and making a bigger deal. However, when I'm spending an hour and a half to two hours on the phone trying to get pain medicine for my stage four uterine cancer who has a tumor growing out of her face. That's where we've ended up. Even on a personal note, I mean, I had a, I had a bad tooth and I needed a root canal. My face was like super swollen and painful, but no one would give me pain medicine, not even for a day to get over it. And, and so I think that we are at this place where we're afraid to make, I mean, I'm not just because those are the drugs that I prescribed, you know, and, and I had plenty of reason, cancer patients, whatnot. But I think that a lot of providers are just afraid to manage pain, either pharmacologically or non-farm. I mean, it's either way, but we are afraid to address pain and that's not good, especially, you know, in palliative medicine where you're, that's the point. That's what you're trying to do, manage quality of life, that sort of thing. So the opioid crisis is, I don't think something that is new, but I think that we have kind of grabbed onto that and made it something that's even gone to the, the other extreme where we're now not managing pain. Well, I'm really glad actually that you brought that up because that's one of the reasons we have guests on the show to have those opposing views because I don't have any experience with palliative care. Okay. So I'm like, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. I would bring up a couple of things though. One, I completely agree that we are ultimately the ones responsible for dispensing, or I should say uh, not dispensing, but prescribing medication. I think that there needs to be some look at though when Purdue Pharma was telling physicians, no, you can prescribe all this. It's not addictive. Exactly. Like that, that to me is like, okay, I understand that I bear some responsibility for what I prescribe. However, if the people that are making it are telling me, oh, here's all these studies and it's totally safe, then at what point does it not follow me and it falls on them? The second thing I, I would say right off the bat about the opiate crisis is I also think this can sometimes be a matter of perspective when we're working in the ER, that is a way different environment about opiate medication than in palliative care. And I would a hundred percent agree with you on my third point is I think we have gone too far the other way that we, and the CDC has even said that. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that we have taken the responsibility. We, we take the time and effort to train these providers and now we are no longer allowing them to do their job. I do know for some states like my state, Ohio in particular, they actually specifically wrote into law that these restrictions don't apply to patients that you are dealing with. Right. Yeah. So like they can they can come hammer me. But if I say this is for palliative care, then hands are off that they, they don't touch you. They don't I should say don't touch you. But you understand what I'm saying? Like no one's going to double yeah. question me. So I think there has to be some kind of responsibility on these companies and I think it also matters on the environment. I don't want any of my patients in primary care. I don't want patients in the ER. I don't want patients anywhere suffering needlessly. However, I think at some yeah. point we have to turn over the responsibility back to the providers and away from these lawmakers who aren't physicians, by the way. They're not medical right. providers. And they're writing laws that they don't understand how they work, what they're doing, etc., and give that responsibility back so that if I see a person that is in excruciating ass pain and I want to give them some tramadol, that no one's going to go, what the hell happened? You know, I mean, I don't have to worry about if I gave them more than 24 hours worth of medication. I find that right. utterly ridiculous that I am being handcuffed like that. But 
nobody looks at. You know, though, I mean, I was handcuffed that, that way, too. And the last place that I had full-time practice was in New York City. So New York City or New York State is a full practice authority state. And the insurance there was tough. Any insurance company that these patients came in with, I would, I, so say, I'm not even talking about Oxycontin or Oxycodone or Percocet or any of, I'm talking about methadone. I mean, methadone is used to treat addiction, however, is a very good answer to neuropathic pain and bone pain, which a lot of my patients would have their stage four. And oftentimes that meant that there were mets in the bones or, you know, in other various body organs affecting the neurological system. So even methadone, I would spend hours on the phone doing a peer-to-peer with physicians and an insurance company just trying to get it approved. And I'm like, and there is, there is no reason that I know that there are carve-outs for hospice and palliative medicine, but we still are not allowed to prescribe. I mean, even in New York, they would, I mean, I could prescribe 30 days, but they would never approve more than seven unless I went through this, you know, two hour long peer-to-peer process, which is super frustrating for the patient. For me, that was a lot. And for these patients that have these life-limiting illnesses, why am I doing that? Why? I think that in that regard, we have really pushed it the other way. I mean, I think yeah. that it's always existed, but we're definitely on the other side now. No, and I agree. I think insurance companies have latched on to the CDC's suggestion because they've even come out and said, you know, that was not our intention to flip it from one side of the quote-unquote crisis to the other. But I think insurance companies have latched onto that and said, oh, no, now we're going to make sure that you're and I have patients that I have on chronic pain medications, and I there are patients I have to write them a prescription every seven days because that's all that insurance will pay for. And it's a pain in the ass for the patient. It's a pain in the ass for me, but it's what the insurance company is directing. That is ridiculous. I wrote for Ciprodex for a patient, and they wanted to refuse it. And I had to get on the phone and call and do all this crap over Ciprodex. Eardrops. So when you guys are talking about this level, I'm like, oh, my God, at what point, again, does it stop? Does the responsibility come back to us and we can work on that? I don't know what the answer is, and I'm sure that's going to be a different episode, but (laughs) it certainly is. But I'm glad you can't. I'm glad you made your point, because honestly, when you're talking about your perspective, it was way different than mine in ER, because I saw people that I was like, okay, well, you don't need to lot it for toe pain. We're, we're not going to give it to you. But at the same time, now I can't give it to the patient that I think it's appropriate to. So I don't know where the middle is. All right. And I don't know if there is a good middle, but we definitely need to come back from the extremes on the on both sides. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely. Benjamin. Yes, sir. That's all the stories I have. Okay, because I think that's the most thorough stories we may have missed we've ever covered on this on this show. Well, I mean, it kind of really tied into palliative care that we wanted you to come on and talk about. So, no, I'm, I, mean, I think it slid really nicely into that. So. I agree, but I just looked up at the the clock. I was like, "Holy cow, we have been on yeah. that story for a minute." <laughs> well, take it from there. So, Deanna, what got you interested in palliative care? Okay, so palliative medicine. So I've been a nurse practitioner now for almost six years, which is crazy to me. And I've been a nurse for since 2008, so 11 years. And mostly as an RN, I did hospice. Didn't want, actually, it kind of fell in my lap. I didn't actually had a period of time where I didn't have a job. And then I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I'll do this. It was at home. It kind of had some flexibility, but honestly, hospice became a work of my heart and helping these people, quality of life issues, that sort of thing, and really addressing those issues became very important to me as a nurse. The funny thing, not funny, honestly, but what led me into palliative medicine, which is kind of like a, it encompasses hospice, but it's not hospice is that I would have these patients that came to me on hospice who had suffered great pain. No one was addressing their pain, i.e. opioid crisis, or no one was really paying attention to their quality of life until 
boom, they have six months or less to live. And suddenly quality of life became super important. That really spoke to me. And I started thinking, you know, why are we not addressing this gap in care between diagnosis of some sort of life-limiting illness, doesn't have to be cancer, but even congestive heart failure or diabetes or any of these, a COPD, any of these illnesses that can significantly limit life, why are we not addressing quality of life issues at that point? We're treating them medically, but we are forgetting to look at the person. And so that kind of is what led me into palliative medicine because it was a more holistic type of care that I was providing. You know, I've been, quote, a social worker. I've been a chaplain. I've been all these things to these families, just kind of trying to fill in the gaps, trying to help them understand advanced care planning and the patients, the families, and try to help them understand what exactly is going on and provide a realistic point of view of what and how this illness is going to impact their life on the day-to-day, I guess. So that's really why it became important to me. I'm sorry, it was kind of a long-winded response, no, but no, I that really is how I got into it. But it's become something very important to me and just like advanced care planning and that sort of thing. Yes, we talk about that at the end of life and when people have these illnesses, but why are we not talking about this in primary care, which is one of the things that I'm working on now is a workflow to implement within like a family practice or primary care setting just to get the discussion going. Because I mean, it's an awkward conversation to have, but especially with a stranger when you're trying to die, why are we waiting until then? Makes sense. So from your point of view or from the point of view of palliative care, let, let's review that because you said you're not doing it currently or at least not full time. What? Yeah, just consulting, really. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing. So what are some of the things for those of us that have no background in hospice or palliative care that we can do to help you from the primary care side? So first of all, one of the most important things is a healthcare proxy. And that's something that Even I encourage my children, well, my oldest, who's almost 16, she's going to be able to fill out her own documents soon. And so even someone who's healthy in family practice, I encourage everyone to do a healthcare proxy who would make decisions for you if you suddenly became unable to make your own decisions, if you were in a car accident, if you had some weird neurological event that rendered you unable to make your own choices. I mean, as a family practice person, that is something that I would be doing. Oftentimes, I will tell you that that has fallen on me as a palliative care provider, but I'm thinking, you know, this person is really sick and they've gone all these years without someone who would make decisions for them. And so that's something that I think that even family practice can do. The next step would be advanced care planning, you know, discussing not necessarily even DNR, but the difference between being a full code and DNR and normalize this language and that conversation, because that conversation is going to have to happen at some point, especially, you know, in the patients, like I said, that have some sort of life-limiting illness. I think even at the family practice level, it's important to start the conversation So it's not so foreign when you've got a stranger in front of you and they're saying all these words and no one has even introduced you to any of the language or the concept that you have mortality and you're going to die. It's a shock when, you know, A, it's a stranger, B, it's a new conversation, and maybe something that you're not talking about. So from a palliative care perspective, involving family practice a lot sooner than when these patients finally get to palliative care, I think is something that's really important. So here's a, it's along those lines, but it's slightly off the subject is you said something about DNRs. I live in Ohio, which have a ridiculously complicated set of DNR, DNRCC, DNRCCA rules, what you can do, when you can do them, et cetera. Do you take the time to explain to them or would you suggest, I should say that when we have this conversation, we explain to them, what each of those steps means like so this is what dnr means this is what dnrcc means this is what they're going to do if this happens like they are not going to do compressions so 
that we can try and have that conversation. But when we get pushback, do we say, look, this is what the information you need to know? Or is that best left to say, okay, we can talk about that when you're ready? How do you suggest going about that? So every patient's different. And some patients are more than willing and open to the idea of discussing these sorts of things. I think that with practice, you kind of come upon like some sort of finesse in trying to initiate this conversation because it's not comfortable for anyone. Right. Even as someone who is experienced in doing this, I've had the end of life quote slash DNR conversation with a zillion people. And every single time I'm nervous because I don't really know how they're going to take it. So I think it's really has to be individualized. There are some patients that I have had to back off, but I think the important thing is, is just to plant the seed that it exists. In New York, we had full practice authority. Also, I I had the ability to sign the MOLST form, which is the Medical Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. That's what they called it in New York. In In Indiana, it's the post. But basically, it just outlines their wishes, code status, if they want artificial nutrition, if they want a vent, if they, I mean, that's kind of what that is. We can't sign that here in Indiana, but in New York, we could. And that's kind of the same idea as the different levels of DNR that you were describing. And so I don't always push them to make a decision, but I at least have the conversation to introduce what the form is and that it exists and that they do have the right to make these choices. Not that they have to. I think that that's mostly where you run into pushback is when you try to push someone into making a decision about that before they're ready. But most people, it's just information. And that's a, w- a good way to put it to the patients is that this is just information. We talk about this with everyone because we're trying to normalize it. And I think that that is one of the most important parts of palliative medicine is that we really try and normalize that conversation, even in trying to teach other specialties and even family practice how to have it with patients. And speaking as an ER provider, I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I've had that conversation in the ER and it is very hard whenever it's the first time that you've met me. I've seen you for two hours now and now I'm telling you, hey, this looks very bad. What do you want to do? Versus working in family practice where I may have seen this patient for the last five years. I have a rapport and I have a relationship with this patient and I can sit down with them and say, hey, you know, if this happens, what do you want it to happen? I would agree wholeheartedly that I think we probably do need to work better to normalize the language and the conversation just so when they, even if it is 10 years from now, when they do have that ER provider who's walking in saying, hey, this doesn't look good, what are you, at least they have had that seed planted, like you said. Yeah. So here's one other question along those lines, and this is something I ran into as a staff nurse I've never run into as a provider yet, is the patient wants to be a DNR uh, in Missouri, they also have a DNI. So they're a DNR, DNI. The family, on the other hand, is like, nah, you're going to run the full code. I personally thought it was, well, abhorrent that these people wanted me to violate their loved one's last wish. What do we or what suggestions do you have when you have that internal mechanism? Because just saying, well, that's their last wish is not always going to be the most appropriate answer? Or do you have an answer to something like that when the family wants something that the patient doesn't? So are you talking that the patient has completed some sort of like the medical order for life-sustaining treatment or the the post? We have a post here in Indiana, but it like the patient had not outlined their wishes and... No, I'm saying a patient said, I am a DNR. I do not want resuscitated and okay. then the family comes in and says, no, resuscitate them. Then there is, it's, no. As a provider, you follow what the patient wants. It doesn't really matter that the family, the family can stop you with a court order, I suppose. But those orders that they complete, if they completed those with the physician, the physician or the nurse practitioner, depending on the state, reviewed those with the patient and signed them, it is an actual medical order. So you cannot get, there is no repercussions for following that order. Of course, as a hospice provider, 
once upon a time, there were many patients and patients' families, you know, even though they knew they were hospice, therefore they were a DNR and they were not supposed to call 911 at the end of life. The patient didn't want it. The patient didn't want CPR, but they didn't have that out of hospital DNR, whatever, hung up on their fridge. And so when the patient died, the family freaked out and called 911. 911 comes in and they have to respond. And so they're doing CPR. And by the time I got there, my patient's lying in the middle of the floor with, they're not, they're dead. They had been dead for a while before, but now they have broken ribs and their body looks yes awful. But this, I think that no matter what, if there is one of the, that's why it's important. It's a pink form. I can't, I don't think in any state that it's any other color, but it's like a bright pink form. And that is one that we always encourage everyone to complete so their last wishes are documented and in the medical record and they can take that form with them anywhere. So that form supersedes anything that the family wants. I think in Kansas, it's actually like highlighter yellow, isn't it? Oh, really? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It's like bright. Ours are like see, highlighter pink, Indiana and in New York and in Connecticut, I guess. That's crazy. So I, that's honestly one of those few things. I, I believe two things. And this is one of those, if I ever got into a position somehow, some way that we could push for this type of thing that across the states, like make it federal, that there's, first of all, a standard language for DNR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the forms and information on those forms are standardized so that if your patient is from Kentucky and they're visiting me in Florida, I don't have to guess. Right. I already know what that form is going to say and what it's going to look like. Because I will tell you right now, it went from a very simple system in Kansas and Missouri to Ohio, which has a almost unintelligible system for their DNR system. Right. And it, it shouldn't be that complicated. It's ridiculous. And it really, I mean, we're not that complicated. We're talking about code status. We're talking about artificial nutrition. If they want antibiotics, if they want to be let go of natural causes, or if they want intervention. And honestly, if, speaking from a medical perspective, why would you do CPR on someone or chest compressions on someone with no intention to vent them? Because... I- I mean. Ma'am, you're you're asking questions <laughs> that I think we have all asked and have never been able to get an answer. I, again, I go back to because somebody who has no idea about what healthcare does or how we do it made that idea. Right. Yeah. I just want chest compressions, and I'm like, why would why would you do that? Why would you do actually? That? Even worse than that to me was the reverse when they said they don't want any heroic measures, just medication. I'm like, so I'm going to push this into a body that has no circulation. Right. Let me just give you some dopamine and hope that it goes. I'm going to give you all this epinephrine right into your right arm. Right. Hopefully that fixes it. Right. Even though your heart's not circulating blood. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but again, I mean, I have actually been in situations and, and nothing bad ever came out of it, but separate ER physicians saw the same document and interpreted it two different ways. That's how bad I feel that Ohio's at least. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we're not alone. I'm sure if we have this problem, somebody else, some other state out there is doing the exact same thing. And I agree with you. It's very simple. You do want resuscitation or you don't. And I think that's a standardization that needs to happen. Right. And I think that it's really in the language that we, it goes back to planting these seeds as family practice people, because it, there are certain things that you should be aware of. The same is for like immunizations, the flu shot, the pneumonia shot, everything that all, you know, trying to get patients to be compliant. They, with diabetic medication, a lot of it is, that education p- component of it and planting the seeds and making the language known. They're not going to know until we put it out there. I mean, the same goes with prescribing antibiotics. A pack was a genius marketing thing. I mean, so easy to say, but look at what we've done to azithromycin. Yeah. And look at what we've oh, done to Lord. it. You know, <laughs> I mean, but I'm like, I, okay, let me just go ahead and put a bowl in the lobby and I'm just going to fill it full of Z-Packs and y'all can just have at it, I suppose, because you might as well eat sweet tarts. 
outside of the side effects that you're probably going to get from it. But it closing the loop, it's really about the education we're providing and planting the seeds and making the language of these choices that we are all going to face one day normal. It needs to be a normal conversation, not something that we're having in a crisis. Because once you get to the, and that's something I always say to my patients, even though it's an uncomfortable conversation, I obviously always acknowledge that, but we need to have this conversation before there's a crisis and someone's making decisions for you and didn't really know what you wanted. We don't have palliative care in this area that I'm aware of. My question then is, so what, from a family practice perspective, what would qualify for a palliative care consult? At what point should I be thinking, yes, we need to get these, this patient in with somebody in palliative care? Okay, so typically it is someone with a life-limiting illness. So congestive heart failure, COPD, stage 3, stage 4 cancer. Those are the common things. It's really, okay. though, anybody that, I mean, even diabetes, if it is managing their illness and dealing with their illness is significantly impacting their quality of life. That's something that palliative care can evaluate to see if they can do anything, but also we're connected to other resources. We have social work. We have those kind of resources like in our back pocket. So, and it's also something that we are accustomed to dealing with. I mean, there's there's been a lot of patients that I see that it wasn't about managing pain, which is something that we do probably 70% of the time is manage pain, but it's not migraine pain. It's not orthopedic pain. It's bone pain from metastases that are all in the bones. You know, I mean, it's managing side effects that are the consequences of therapy from managing their congestive heart failure or the COPD or those sorts of things. And so those kinds of things warrant a palliative care consult. And honestly, it really just boils down to what is my patient's disease burden doing to their quality of life? And if you feel that it's affected in some negative way, that's something that palliative care can at least look at and refer to the correct person if it's not something that is managed by palliative care, as in the patient is probably within one to two years of death. So what are some resources, because obviously I can't just message you or palliative care every time I have a question, what are some good resources that you would recommend for us to be able to access so that we can kind of brush up on this type of information so that we can make these decisions? So there are basically three organizations, the Hospice and Palliative Care Nurses Association, which is HPNA, is one that I lean on actually a lot. They have up-to-date research, they have guidelines, they have that sort of thing that you can look at, even as a, a hospice and palliative RN. That was something that I like to lean on just to learn new things even about hospice and palliative medicine and new ideas of managing symptoms as a provider that's been really helpful. And HPNA is also linked to AAHPM, which is the American Association of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. And so there's a lot of physicians within that group and it's more physician-based than it is nurse-based. However, I'm a member with both of those and was published through them, one of my studies that I did at NYU. And so they are really supportive of research. So they have a lot of new and upcoming ideas for managing symptoms and quality of life issues on palliative care patients. So those are two fantastic resources. CAPNI is the other one, and it's that's more of an organizational type of resource. Most oncology centers have a connection with them, but they are basically a kind of like a grassroots effort in trying to help businesses grow a palliative care program. So because of your history with hospice then, from a family practice standpoint, one of the difficult conversations that I have is with a patient in regards to, is it time for hospice? Is it not? And a lot of times it's obviously met with resistance because there's that stigma that patients have that they think if they're put on hospice, that 
it's the end. You're sending them out there to die. Yeah. Right. So do you have any tips on easing into that conversation or ways to have that conversation? That's a conversation that I have had so many times. I mean, and just the look on their faces and you know, you know when it's not going to go over well. So my best advice, and this is oftentimes what I tell my patients, is that hospice does not mean that you're dying. Hospice means that we're shifting the focus of care from treatment to quality of life. And so instead of spending all your time coming in here and getting labs, having your potassium checked every two seconds, you know, your CBC, whatever, and adjusting treatment accordingly, you're free to go do what you want. You no longer have to worry about these labs or coming in here. All you have to worry about is being happy and, you know, know that someone is going to be around to help make sure that the days that you have are important. Now, should, should you ever tell them, you know, a time frame? I've never given a patient a time frame. What I tell them about hospice is in order to qualify for hospice, the black and white is six months or less to live. However, I have had hospice patients that have lasted two and three years, and mostly because their quality of life improved so much because they were no longer spending all of their time and all of their worry in a physician or nurse practitioner's office or in the ER. They had someone who came to their home and listened to them and helped them live their best life. You know, I mean, that was, that's the point. And so when you get someone that you have to have that conversation, painting that picture and changing that, what you said, it's a stigma. I mean, most often you tell someone, I think maybe hospice might be a good idea for you. And it's not because we're going to stop caring for you. And that's important for them to know too. Hospice does not mean Rio put you in a barn somewhere and never think about you again. That's kind of what people think, but it's not true. Just because you're hospice does not mean that we're going to stop caring. We're going to care. It's just that we're not going to pump you full of chemotherapy or radiation or all these cardio drugs. We're not going to do that anymore because you have chosen a different angle. And so painting that picture that this is almost kind of like empowering them, that this is their decision, but these are the benefits is very important because until we continue to educate about hospice and palliative medicine and the benefits of it, people will continue to think that it's something associated with death and it shouldn't be. Well, ma'am, is there any last thoughts or information that you want everybody out there listening to take away about palliative care or what's the important aspects that you want to make sure everyone takes away from this discussion? I mean, really, it's a summary of what we've been talking about, you know, all the way from the opioid crisis in understanding that we need a balance between overprescribing and underprescribing for pain. We need to be realistic about it. We need to understand the disease processes and the impact of quality of life that pain has on patients, not just pain, but other symptoms, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, any of those things. So... Palliative care, I think that that's a very important takeaway. Also to talk to your loved ones about what you want, make your decisions, fill out the appropriate paperwork, even if it's years and years before you may die. I mean, there's no harm and you can always change it. It's not something that once you fill it out, it's written in cement. I mean, it's, it is a fluid document and can change at any time. So that's something else that's very important for people to know. But ultimately, I think that people should take advantage of palliative care and hospice, just not just for the patient, but for the family, because that element of support that palliative care and hospice provides is very helpful. Even when we when you get to the point where the loved one passes away, oftentimes those people have then formed relationships with their hospice or palliative care provider that helps support them through that grieving process. So there's a lot there, but just reaching out to your family practice provider and not being afraid to discuss your choices and end-of-life issues as a consumer of healthcare, not even as a provider, is very important. And so I think that's the message that palliative care is really trying to send right now is to 
take control of your own decisions and just and bring up the conversation with your healthcare provider. Fair enough. Tom, you ready for our final segment? I am. Deanna, are you ready for the final segment? Uh, sure. <laughs> We've been discussing some heavy stuff. We're going to end on a, on a light note. No, it's great. That's what I don't think anybody in this conversation was expecting palliative care to end with any laughs and Rainbows giggles. And okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that no fart noises were going to happen during that interview. So that's fine. But we do have a guest, you know, Ben suggested it. And we kind of developed a tradition at the end of our interviews with our guest. And I think Ben's going to explain it here in a second. Join us on a journey into the inner psyche of our guest as we ask five, 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 five questions. All right, Deanna. So we're going to ask you, these are the same five questions that we ask every guest that we have on the show. Okay. And it's not anything that you need to put a whole lot of thought into. We just kind of want your first answer. <laughs> I ask the questions. Tom makes fun of your answers. So, Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. It, it's a system that works well for us. Yeah. Okay. It, it, so, Deanna, question one. What is your favorite medical word? Oh, um, my favorite medical word? I've never thought about that. <laughs> um, That's why we ask the hard questions. Yeah. I know, just... right? I'm like, wow, I've not really thought about that. I would for... say, you know, a scaphalunate ligament is probably one of my favorites. Wow. wow. I right. was not yeah. expecting that. I'll tell you that. That was not on my list. <laughs> right. I tore mine. And so I repeated that word over and over and over to people. And they just looked at me like, huh? And I'm like, it's right here. You know, it connects my thumb to my wrist. Yeah, I tore that. <laughs> Question two. If you could do any job in the world other than what you currently do, what would it be? I'd be a flight attendant. Jesus. What? Why? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the answer, but now I'm like, okay, I got to hear the answer. Well, I mean, because I like to travel, and, but more than that, people are so weird. Oh, yeah. I think that would be like the equivalent to like Vegas people watching all the time. Yeah, okay. Apparently, I can see that. Yeah. That's a better answer than I was expecting. Like, I like to chew bubble gum and pop my ears and be stuck in a tube with a bunch <laughs> of people with BO. Like, yeah, no, that's a, everyone's dream. Way to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I think that it would be. I like pouring job. people pop and tomato juice. I mean, juice and you sometimes. know, honestly, so. I think as providers, I think that we, and nurses even, I think that we would do great as flight attendants because we have to have that WTF look off our face, even when the patient's like telling you, you know, they have a shot glass shoved in some orifice that you don't really want to talk shower. about. Right? I mean, like, yeah, fell in the shower or whatever, but you have to have like that straight face. And I think that that's probably setting me up really nice to become a flight attendant if I ever wanted to change careers. You're definitely the first person to say flight attendant. <laughs> All right. Question three. Think back to your first car. Was it a stylish ride or a rolling turd? <laughs> it was a, I guess it was a stylish ride. I had a neon blue Dodge neon. Nope. Wrong. <laughs> yes, it was brand new though and i, I don't care <laughs> i mean compared to i drive an audi i have an audi a 2017 oh audi boy oh, and compared to that yes my dodge neon was a rolling turd <laughs> but at the time it was a brand new and it was it was neon blue i mean it it felt like a roller skate when i was driving in it but i thought <sighs> i was hot shit so i I swear to first of all, if it's brand new, I can see stylish ride. Okay. But I swear to God, I swear to God. When she said neon blue, I was like, my first thought was I she had better not say Dodge Neon was my <laughs> next was my next thought. And then you said it and I was like, Nope, we're going down. That's that's how this <laughs> I have a stylish ride now, but okay, so my very first before I got my license. Like the car that I learned on was like a 1986 Toyota Camry that was like completely rusted out. And so the Dodge Neon was a stylish ride. 
Felt like See, but you're comparing okay. it. So, but right. I, I guess if you're saying brand new, no one's farted in that seat new. yet. No one. Yeah, exactly. So, I think we can give it on those points. But <laughs> I know a guy, Sam, the producer, had a neon blue was, Dodge Neon, and I was yeah, like, that yeah. was a shit box. So there's <laughs> no way. <laughs> I was gonna say, who would drive a neon? Certainly not a producer. <laughs> Certainly not a producer of a non-award-winning podcast. Right. <laughs> All right. Question four. Okay. If your house is on fire and everyone, including your pets, are safe, oh. what's the one thing you want to get out of your house? Uh, my Instapot. Your what? Really? Yeah. Like, like coffee? No. no, Instapot. It's like it... It's like the pressure cooker. Yes, it cooks everything for my family. And like, so I would be able to make meals. Like if we left the house and had to leave everything here. You don't think that there's food outside of your house? (laughs) No, but I'd be able to What part of Indiana do you live in? (laughs) There's there's a lot of corn around here. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But there's no stores? I'd be able to cook quickly. I mean, like, I, I quickly thing, like every day. So you're going to plug it into the 12 volt in the back of your Audi and just whip up some uh, cornbread sure. in the back? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, you think, you know, okay, you go for pictures or clothes. Yeah, that's or what answers. Everyone time, says pictures. But by the time, I mean, but all my pictures are on my phone. You know, I mean, like, I've got my phone. Oh, wait, you didn't say if I had my phone. Yeah, you didn't grab, oh, your, grab phone. your phone. Well, then you I guess I'm getting t- my no, phone. No, you're not. You're cork- you're cooking <laughs> in the back of an Audi is what you're doing. So, too late, madam. You have made your answer. So. <laughs> I just assumed my phone was in my pocket. Well, no. you know what assuming does. So there you go. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right, question five. You have $9.18 in your pocket. What all do you buy? What do I have? $9.18. I have nothing else. I mean, do I need to to go buy toilet paper? Am I thinking about this too much? Yeah, you're thinking too much. You're walking down the street. Your house is not burnt. Your Instapot's just (laughs) fine. Your phone is in your pocket. You have $9.18, okay? Your Audi is parked fine somewhere. No bird shit on it. So you got $9.18. What do you buy? Like, let's say you go to the, like, the convenience store. What, okay. You have $9. I go, okay, so I'm going to go buy Fire Cheetos and Laffy Taffy and a Diet Pepsi. That is a great answer. <laughs> See, that was great. <laughs> Not toilet paper. See, we're good. Not, yeah. I was like, damn, she's a prepper. Like, what is she? <laughs> I can make I can make nutritious meals in the back of my <laughs> like what is she talking about? <laughs> oh, she drives an Audi. You're telling me you're not going to a hotel where you can't find food near it? Give me a break. I know these things. <laughs> I've been through Indiana. There are stores there. So. Yeah, well, you know though, my Audi is in the shop right now because I wrecked it last night. So yeah. you're driving a neon blue Dodge Neon? <laughs> no, it's a Santa Fe, but it might as well be as as bad. Oh my goodness! I know my face is all messed up. It's not good. So I was like, yeah. I asked Ben. I said, right, "Is this a video thing?" Because that's not happening. I'm yeah. like, I have two black eyes, and it's not good. <laughs> yeah, she sent me a picture earlier. She's like, "It's not video, right?" I'm like, "No, no." And then she's like, "I'm like, oh wow, yeah, you got." Bang the hell up. Yeah, I smacked oh. my face. It was bad, but I'm okay. We're all right. She has a concussion and she won't remember any of this conversation. Don't <laughs> exactly. worry, I won't either. So I got that I got that podcast amnesia. So Right. Well, well don't that, forget uh, though, get Laffy Taffy at the uh, convenience store. And Fire Cheetos. What flavor of Laffy Taffy? Probably cherry. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that concludes five questions. So <laughs> If you like this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. You can find us on the web or www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can email us if you want to be on the show or you want to tell us that you listen to the show because Tom needs some feedback. Admin at justsomepodcast.com. Please, someone feed my ego. I need it. <sighs> all right. I'm high maintenance. What can I you say? You are high. Oh, 
You need Instapot. I need Instapots, apparently, that I can plug into the back of my fucking car. So <laughs> I'm making cornbread, officer. That's why I was swerving. I got an Instapot back here. It ain't a meth oh, lab. Well. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's not going to look terrible at all. On that note, <laughs> Tom? Yes. I don't know what we're going to do next week, but it's our one-year anniversary, so... I, hope you I think we're going to talk off the show. I have an idea. I hope you don't forget, you heartless. You better writers. write it down. I, I will write it down. <laughs> I need to know, though, at this time of year, do either of us have access to large amounts of fireworks? It's almost Labor Day. What the hell? What? Do they do in Indiana <laughs> that you are using fireworks on Labor Day? People do. I swear. Illegally. Man, well, that's gunfire. That's what you're hearing. That's not fireworks. <laughs> Shit. Man, what is going on? <laughs> Man. I told you, there's a lot of corn here. Uh, yeah. And, and banjos. So. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> oh, I'm just well. saying, if I if I become president, I want to wall off the states of Indiana and Oklahoma, and I'm just going to make them federal prisons. So, I mean, I'll move you out first. Thanks. I like you, but the Don't rest of my Instapot. Well, no, your Instapot. <laughs> I will. I will make them take everything out. But then the rest of that state, though, it's got to go. So, sorry. Oh. Okay. Well, there go our, our listeners are going to drop in Indiana and Oklahoma, but it's okay. Well, <laughs> what the hell? You just heard from an Indiana listener. All they're doing is going around a cornfield shooting at each other. They don't give a shit. <laughs> We have, I have sparklers. I feel like I have a running sparklers. I have a running supply of sparklers. My kids, they're on top of the uh, refrigerator. Now that I understand that my kid loves sparklers too. All the neighborhood kids do. So yeah. So okay. All right. Well, Tom. On that note, I hope everybody has a great week. All right, everybody, stay safe out there. Fireworks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hey, she brought it up. Never get to see. All the beauty that's surrounding me Cause I am just an empty circle And the days just passed me by Never gave much thought to how or why I try to hide myself in everything And the truth is I don't know Anything but I've been told Life is just a Ferris wheel ride But you get off When I fall down